robotics is going to change everything. Artificial intelligence, everything. It's time for the next round. There's a genesis of AI. They're not moral agents. There's no engine, it's an app, so it's always on. This will be a place where people will touch, see, feel, and work alongside robots. We're not the first, we're living up to a legacy. Technology, AI, robotics, we don't always see it, but these days we are always surrounded by it. In the wrong hands, robots could be hacked, manipulated or even programmed to kill. And will robots replace our jobs, or will they create a new industry requiring new workers to learn new skills? We went to a most unlikely place away from all the tech centres to find out where the future of technology, AI and robots are taking us in the fourth industrial revolution. And the most encouraging thing we found was good people who are working hard to stay ahead and keep us safe in the race of technology. I want to be like the Henry Ford of robotics. Um, you know, what you're seeing here are the Model Ts. If robots are now your cars, would you be saying that everyone's going to own a robot? Well, that's my hope. Everyone in their garage having robots, 3D printers, tiny factories. Why couldn't your neighborhood be a community of makers, all working together? And what about the people who may say, but I'm scared about robots. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't know how to control it. What do you think about that? I think that's more of a reason than anything for us all to be involved. Mm -hmm. There's a few people controlling everything right now. And if we, we're not involved and we allow people to do whatever they want, I'm actually less scared that the robots will do this than a person that shouldn't be doing it does. We went to York, Pennsylvania to meet with entrepreneur and AI and robotics expert, John McElligot, to find out where the field of robotics outside of Silicon Valley is heading. Can I ask how many businesses you've started in York? It sounds uh, like more than two I, or three. I, yeah, I've started, <laughs> so a serial entrepreneur, so I've started maybe 18 businesses. About five of them, apart from the ones I'm running now, were on York. I soon learned that entrepreneur isn't quite the right description. A lot of times people ask me, what's it like being an entrepreneur? And I'm like, I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm an industrialist. Industrialists create opportunities for other people, not just themselves, because you create a whole industry. And out of that, you'd service, and uh, there, there's opportunities for other entrepreneurs uh, to build companies and new technologies. John is an ex-Marine who has traveled the world, but I was yet to find out why he chose to establish his robotic empire in York. You could be doing this anywhere, and it could be much easier. You know, when I go to San Francisco, when I go to New York, when I go to Boston, the, the draw is very powerful. Um, you know, being able to go into a coffee shop and I just say the word robot and five people walk up and want to give me a card and start a company together. There's something very appealing about that. Um, but I don't know if it's the Marine in me or that I love adventure or challenge. There's also something amazing about being in a place that has done incredible things before. Like these are, buildings to live up to, walls to live up to, machines to live up to, reminders that, um, that maybe I'm the first one trying this right now. I'm not the first one who have done amazing things and this town has changed the world multiple times over. York is a place where things happen. It was the first capital of the United States of America for about nine months. It's also where the Articles of Confederation were first signed. York is also known for its manufacturing and industry. York has, has been forever a center of the advancement of technology. Little old York 
was on Hitler's list. Really? On, on the hit list. On the hit list. <laughs> Hitler's hit Be, list. Because, oh yes, because of our technology and because of uh, the example that we set for the country. Mayor Helfrich taught us how York's industrial capacity and cooperative community in the past inspired communities across the country during World War II. Before World War II, some of our industrial leaders here saw there's already a war in Europe, but that it was going to affect America whether we liked it or not. So they started working together. They overcame their differences yeah, that's fantastic. and they started sharing tools, they mm -hmm. shared skills, they actually worked together as a unit. And then when the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, needed a plan of how America was going to react to getting dragged into uh, World War II, the York plan came forward and they said, wow, this is an amazing plan. You guys, you know, you, and I don't think anybody else had a plan, so that helped. But. Uh, <laughs> So but, you were one step ahead. Yeah, we were, we were a step ahead yeah. of the game. And then the York plan was taken all across the country. And it was the example for how we on the home front could unite and work together to help support not only our troops, but our allies and freedom across this world. York's industrial past is a big driver for John's futuristic vision. Just up the street from where we are, they built components for the Mars rover. Like there are pieces of a robot built in York on Mars. And we're trying to get to Mars and York already got there. John showed us why he thinks downtown York is the right place for him to be. Over there is an old armory that's being turned into the kids' space. There'll be robotics things there and like a, a museum and touch and feel experiences for the kids. York College is there. York College is creating their knowledge park. So if you go three blocks that way, there's United Fiber and Data. This is the last largest undeveloped piece of land in York City, commonly referred to as the Northwest Triangle. We raised about $6 million to start the York Plan 2.0 Innovation District. This will be a place where people will touch, see, feel, and work alongside robots. Everything is accelerating at such a rate that, um, that the same way we weren't ready in 1940, we need to get ready now. And very, very soon, it's going to be all of us, not just York, that's going to have to get ready. Driving past the historic buildings that still line York City streets, I wondered why John asked us to meet him at the local McDonald's car park. So when I moved to York, a couple things struck me, the beautiful architecture, but also these murals that were all over town. This one is of the York plan. Do what you can with what you have became the slogan of the original York plan. What did you think when you first learned about that York plan? I was a little surprised that it was in a McDonald's parking lot because I was like, this is the time that York saved the world. I mean, York has done all these amazing things, um, but most people know us for the peppermint patty, um, which is, I guess there's worse things to be known for. But is this where the peppermint patty yes, came from? Yes, York peppermint patty, yep. I love peppermint patties. <laughs> we'll get you oh some gosh, peppermint patties while you're that. here. We are in the, the land of peppermint patties, but we have a lot more exciting things going on right here. Time for more robots. We spent a lot of money and a lot of time developing technologies that are paying off for us right now. Just these last two months we did more than all of last year and it doesn't show any signs of stopping. So the robot you're about to see, um, this whole facility will be full of robots like this by the end of the year. Wow, let's take a look. All right. So this is Colton. He's uh, our lead designer of Metis, the software program. Nice to meet you. Humble abode. <laughs> wow, it's yeah. uh, expensive. <laughs> At least while I'm uh, working on this guy. These are the kinds of robots you need to be very, very careful with. This is more like 10% of how fast it can be. Yeah. 
Oh, right. So these can yeah. really, these oh, yeah. can really oh, they move. they can fly, yep. And this one can also hold up to 400 pounds on the end of it. You're going to see robots like this out in public. Construction, we're not prepared for what this is about to look like. I mean, exoskeleton technology, so wearing of robots, wearing a Iron suit. Man? Yeah, wearing a suit that controls a robot like this, we're not that far away. We are just not ready for it. We think the largest challenge is going to be how fast can you build, install, and maintain. Those are manufacturing and workforce problems. They're not flashy, they're not sexy, and they're not what Silicon Valley wants to do, but they're things that we're very good at. And so this is where I think middle America has an opportunity to dive in and be the ones that build the future. John's enthusiasm for growing manufacturing jobs is contagious. There's real purpose behind our work. Although we work on technology, the technology is for people. The people focus at York X extends beyond the company to innovative workforce training partnerships in other parts of the country. It was a partnership between the Fortress Academy, York Exponential, uh, my company, and Goodwill of MoCam. It was the first time that a workforce development program was implemented to make sure that people don't get left behind. When I was working with robots with the Artemis project, I was mind blown. You know, kind of like when you uh, open a gift, it's like, wow! It's like surprising. Tim Starr was so inspired by the training that he became an ambassador for the program and an inspiration for workers with special needs. Everyone should have an opportunity of working with different areas if they want a job. The purpose of this particular technology was, one, it was for the training purpose. We wanted to create a functional piece of equipment that our robot technicians could learn on. Two, it was for people to have a positive first experience with a robot. So we thought having a robot pour you a drink uh, at a party <laughs> is probably a good opportunity to do that. Long-term effort and persistence is now paying off. We're actually, um, I think, the fourth company that's tried to accomplish this, and we're the first ones to be able to pull it off, to actually read sign language. So you'll see that's how we control the robot, is through hand gestures. Um, Welding robot. Yeah. As you move the robot, you can free drive with the robot, and that's how it gets programmed to weld. So, uh, uh, yeah, programming and teaching, what's the difference? That's... The, there really isn't that much of a difference now. Collaborative robots are a brand new generation of robots. People seem to think that things that are very easy for people are easy for robots, and it's actually the reverse. Some things that are very, very easy for us, like making sense of your surrounding, like a child can do, is easy. But very intricate and tight movements is Easy for robots, hard for people. So these are the friendly bots. They're, yes, they'll follow me around on a Saturday. When people see a robot out in the wild for the first time, their minds are blown. People are scared of what they don't know. So I think having that first positive experience opens the door to a conversation. Can I ride on it? But all fun and games aside, John knows that tools in the wrong hands can be misused and that important discussions about the new tech aren't yet being had. I ask people, who are you the most honest with? And you know, some people say their spouse, some people say they have a friend from high school. And I was like, you're wrong, it's your browser. Oh. You ask your browser questions, you would be too ashamed to ask anybody else that artificial intelligence knows you better than anyone. And that is the AI that's growing up with your kids. That is scary. I mean, we should be terrified. And the fact that there is no questioning where the technology comes from makes me very nervous. Our trip to York gave me a lot to think about. 
and after a quick recharge, I think I'm ready to ask more questions. We're in a very smart car. Full of AI, would you say? Maybe there's not as much AI as uh, I was imagining. Really? So you would have liked even more? Yeah. Kanan Shankaran is an AI engineer and an early adopter of new technologies like this smart electric car. The way I see it is it's an app on wheels. Once you learn how to use it, you become comfortable with it, just like your phone app. Well, are you going to turn the engine on? There's no engine. It's an app, so it's always on. It's a device. It's like a phone. It's always on. So there's nothing to turn on. Should I mention that? Yes. I still have a lot to learn about AI. Okay. Let's go. So how much do you trust the app? Initially, I trusted it like almost 0%. You were a bit skeptical. I think I was more, um, uh, more driven by my own curiosity of what would happen if I do this? What would happen if I do that? Rather than whether I'm going to die or whether I'm going to live necessarily. And no, my legs are not on the accelerator. How long did it take for you to get used to this? Well, my mind was already on a, the AI exploration, so it didn't take that long. But as I study more, I see the good parts and I see all the limitations as well. I just changed lanes, right? I didn't do anything. See, the, the lane moved a little bit and there were no markings uh, at the intersection but the car was uh, able to adapt itself to that. Oh, there is a stop sign. It didn't notice it. So, so it's not foolproof. <laughs> no, it isn't. Now you can see this is a very fast turn and the car is now reacting to the traffic in front of it. And also it is turning right now, right? So it has to navigate both of these complexities. Wow, see, <laughs> it's going by itself. I didn't do anything. Oh, I took, it, I took over because I thought I was scared. Maybe not the car, but I was a little concerned. Not scared, but maybe concerned. Okay, now I'm gonna take over completely. These kind of cars, for example, have artificial specific intelligence, right? They're very specialized. They're very compartmentalized. They're very good in one thing or maybe a few things. Your car has some funny features. Yes. <laughs> Kids would love this one. Of course. <laughs> oh no. What? Who's doing this? And why? This is on a turn How? signal. I'm turning that off. <laughs> but that was fun. Yeah, for you. <laughs> fun for me. Exactly. It has more cameras than sensors. So you and I have two eyes. The car has eight eyes. So I can zoom in to see what car is behind. You see, sometimes it shows people, which is funny. Like bicycles going past. Yeah, see, this visualization is real time. And you can see this uh, light turn green over here, this traffic light. Over oh, there. And, and that actually happened up here? Yes. The car actually has a, a feature to automatically see the raindrops through artificial intelligence by looking at the raindrops. How fast can this car go? Really fast. I think 0 to 60, somewhere between 3.7 and 4 seconds. Vroom! I grew up in India where there's a lot of public transportation. So there was no need for me to uh, basically have any car. So when I came to the US, Driving becomes an important thing. I noticed that the whole mindset of, of learning to drive a car like this is that you have to fundamentally be open-minded. Just like any you know, new app that you are downloading. You don't know what it has, but you, you believe in the potential. We would always uh, want to push that idea of everything being automated and the car driving itself. That idea is actually a robo-taxi type idea. 
So why are you so excited about a fully automated car? A robot well, taxi? Wouldn't you be? So would you say you live and breathe AI in your day-to-day -day life? <laughs> no, I'm a human being. I live and breathe human human air. <laughs> but I have, an, I have a definitely an optimism and, and enthusiasm to its potential. In stationary mode, the car's toy box is full of more fun features. Oh, I love that. Oh, look at that! Yep. Ooh. Ooh. You're using the actual brake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I'm an actual accelerator. Curiosity and wonder are big drivers of technology. But what else do we need to know about AI and where it's taking us? So what could be the worst that AI could do? I prepared to speak to a New York professor, philosopher and expert in AI who's been involved in discussions at the United Nations to stop killer robots on a global scale. But despite all my preparation, some of his answers still left me speechless. These technologies are moving very quickly and, and we'll see them in many militaries very soon if we don't do something to prohibit them. You really want to kind of keep those really sophisticated weapons for very efficiently killing humans out of existence. We just, we don't need those. How do you think that, oh, that, that, that I have so many questions that comes up from that, but. Um... Before going deeper, I wanted to show what I thought the robots might look like. Often the press likes to put an image of the Terminator on stories about the campaign. Then this mega transformer-like robot from Japan came to mind. But Peter didn't agree. What image do you think people should have in their minds when they're thinking about autonomous AI? <laughs> AI is just a fancy word for a computer program, right? <laughs> what the robots are going to look like is also kind of difficult because what we're really talking about are these very distributed networks. You may have sensors on the ground or in drones or satellites that are collecting all kinds of data and information that's going to some central cloud computing that's then activating a little autonomous you know, weapons platforms that could be drones or robots or submarines or what have you that would then go and attack various targets. The debate seems to be that if we don't do it too, then we're going to be behind in terms of military capabilities. What you wind up doing is spending lots and lots of money developing a lot of military technology to try to keep up or get ahead. These systems are highly unpredictable because they're interacting with the world autonomously. So we don't know how they're going to interact with each other when they meet each other on the battlefield because we can't test that in advance. I mean, that sounds um, like ro robot wars. Is that is that the potential? In theory, sure, you could see robots fighting robots, and we might say that's better than humans fighting humans. But then we could also ask, why are we using all of our technology and resources to do that? We could be doing other things and spending the money on things that would end the conflict as opposed to uh, win, win an armed conflict or a war. It's hard to put those systems in positions where you, they're only going to you know, kill the appropriate targets and lawful targets. And then you have all the cyber issues. <laughs> so these systems can be hacked. They could get taken over or manipulated to do things that you didn't intend for them to do. Peter had me scared. So it was time to ask some hard questions. Where are we at now in terms of those decisions being 
made down the line when it comes to robots that have the ability to take human life. We tend to think it's very sophisticated and that computers and robots are making you know, thousands of decisions and calculations and this sort of thing. But what they're really doing is relying on some sensor data. The system is going to say, you know, I recognize the target or I don't recognize the target. It's not really deciding, like, is this military operation necessary? Uh, is this war a just war? Right? It's not asking any of those sites of questions at all. And then it's not really even asking questions like, oh, is this maybe the soldier trying to surrender? There's certain critical questions and critical activities that humans engage in, questions of life and death, questions of justice, questions of like, human values. But are we capable of automating those things, do you think? Well, in a certain sense, sure, right? We could decide court cases by flipping coins if we wanted to. That's not the best way to do it, right? Um, so the question is, you know, what should we use the technology for? And when we do use the technology, how should we use it? And what is Peter's biggest concern? They're not moral agents. Uh, they're not legal agents. We can't take them to court and sue them. We can't hold them morally responsible for their actions. They don't feel guilt. They don't empathize. Peter made me think about the differences between human intelligence and artificial intelligence and what it is that makes us human. We have to be responsible with all the technologies that we're using that are essentially making these life and death decisions in a military context, as well as any kind of algorithm that is really making judgments over human rights, uh, human dignity, uh, and what are the kind of the requirements for responsibility and accountability in those systems. And I was grateful for the reminder. It seems that AI is bringing us together more and more, whether we like it or not. So the message I'm hearing from you is that we need to recognize that and do that in a positive way. That's what needs to be done. I spoke with Cyrus Parsa, author and founder of the AI organization, who is dedicated to getting people talking about new tech. For human beings, what interests us is things that are exciting, but also things that we can talk about. So since this is a new field and a new age, it's something we can all start talking about. There's a genesis of AI, meaning when all these things come together, it advances technology, it advances smart cities, it brings in, ushers in the fourth industrial revolution. There's a lot of positives. 5G is made, it helps humanity in certain ways, but it's actually made to mobilize machines, drones and robots, because the millimeter waves are faster than you really need for your smartphones to download videos. There's more to it. It has to do with an interconnection of smart cities and smart cars. Should we fear this AI? Uh, no, I don't think we should fear it. We should be um, cautious of how it develops. Cyrus gave me an example that I could understand. A kid, has certain genes and has a certain environment, but it learns a lot through experience. If you want a robot or a machine or AI system to develop to a conscious level like a human being, you would need to obtain experience. So for instance, facial recognition. When an AI system scans, let's say, a few million faces, automatically it can look at that person and use emotion detection. Or that person has a certain religion or that person belongs to a certain race. Uh, how would they know someone's religion by looking at someone's face? Let's say you look at the Uyghurs uh, in China. 
the Uyghur, okay. Uyghur Dab- Muslims in China. Oh, right. So maybe the, a head a headscarf or maybe a beard for the for the men. No, it's more advanced than that. First is technical. There is a certain racial composition. The AI system will run patterns and say that is a Uyghur. Just like on Facebook, when you um, interact with a lot of different people, it's going to categorize you as this person's conservative, that person's liberal. In order to mobilize this fourth industrial revolution, you need biometrics, your facial recognition, your voice recognition, and other things related to DNA. When machines get mobilized, Amazon delivers with drones. You have Boston uh, Dynamics comes in with uh, Spot the Dog or humanoid robots. Just by your surroundings being altered, your perceptions naturally be altered. But the AI system, if it becomes rogue, we would no longer be in control. The biggest thing we have to do is prevent rather than react because it can be weaponized. Even at the, at the little, uh, the small scope, you look at Boston Dynamics. It, it's a wonderful dog they've, they've made. Spot the dog. You can customize it, put teeth on it. You already have facial recognition, you put your friend's facial recognition, it goes after your friend. Everyone we spoke to seemed very aware of the risks and dangers. The public is not generally informed until the products come out. You don't know until it's too late. So I believe in a balanced approach talk about the positives and the potential negatives and bring out technology in a safer way. This is how it should be done with AI. Before it comes out, people should know and make sure it, the future is divvied up in, in a fair way and a just way. Knowing these AI advocates and experts are out there doing this is reassuring, but only if we are willing to listen, to learn and to prepare ourselves. Thank you to everyone who participated in the making of this week's episode. If you have a story you'd like to see on NTD's Life and Times, contact us via our website, lifeandtimes.tv. And don't forget to like, subscribe and follow us on social media. Until next time, wishing you health, wealth and happiness. I'm Kay Rubacek and thanks for watching Life and Times.